I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, and welcome to Once Upon a Gene. I'm your host and rare friend forever, Effie Parks. As many of you know, the Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit was extraordinary, an extra special time, as it was its first in-person event in years. And this summit always draws people for, of course, the practical reasons and the networking reasons, but actually being together with your people, your community, that was just so velvety and apparent this round. This interview is actually a product of that summit. I met this awesome mom where one does in Clubhouse in the Gene Fixers room. She's a mom that is surrounded by dudes, a husband and four boys. Her last son, Tristan, was born with a rare disease, and she's one of those highly motivated parents who started a foundation to find and help create a therapy for kids like her son, Tristan, with KCNH1-related disorders. She's made a lot of progress already in the short time since starting. But today, we aren't talking about that aspect of our journey. She also happens to be a marriage and family therapist. Ding, ding. So I thought it would be valuable to talk with her about the big red fire truck in rare disease world and the mental health aspects. So please welcome my special guest, Michelle Jeanette. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy you're here and on an extra special week. We're here at the Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit 2022 in San Diego, California, podcasting live. So exciting. I have been looking forward to this for so long. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your time here at the Global Gene Summit. Maybe some key takeaways, best panels. What would you like to see next year? Give us all the goods. Oh, man. Honestly, the biggest thing to me is just having a chance to, you know, I have spent so many hours sending emails and listening to your podcast and joining into clubhouse discussions and just getting to meet all of these people in person for the first time is really, really exciting. And I think invaluable to pushing the research forward and all of that, just making these connections is huge. Yes. I'm so glad that you made it here. I actually found you on clubhouse. We hit up the same gene fixers group every week and you are pounding the pavement so early on in your journey too, which is just remarkable. And I'm so happy you're here. And I can't wait to learn a little bit more about you. One of the reasons I pinged you in that clubhouse is because you're a therapist. And like anytime I hear someone's a therapist in their own world, I, I snatch them up and I put them in my pocket. 
Good. Yes. It's great to be able to access that part of my brain again, because I feel like my life has completely been taken over for the past year and a half by rare disease and the foundation we've created. And so it's really nice to get to talk about my first love. Yes. Okay. Well, like I said, we're going to kind of talk about your first love, but do tell us a little bit about your family and why you're here anyway. I have four little boys, ages eight seven, five, and two, almost three. And our littlest one, Tristan, was diagnosed a year and a half ago with an ultra rare and very severe genetic disorder. And so he was 15 months at the time, just past a year and just starting to miss like verbal milestones. He had always babbled and stuff. And he's not as severely affected physically as a lot of the kids with his KCNH1 genetic mutation. And so we, when we got the diagnosis, we were completely, completely unprepared for the severity of the prognosis and his intellectual impairment, because it was just a little early to be able to really tell. So yeah, it was pretty shattering, very shattering. And I pretty much cried every day for a month. And of course, immediately, I didn't want to accept it. And I immediately started staying up all night trying to find all the articles I could find about KCNH1 and contacting a bunch of the authors and got put in contact pretty quickly with well, thankfully was alerted by another rare disease mom. You know, I start reading these articles and like, oh, in mice models, this channel blocker can restore cognitive function. Or, you know, I'm thinking, what about CRISPR? I've heard about CRISPR before. Can't we just fix that one little nucleotide that's incorrect? Can't we just do that for him? But I kind of thought it took me like a solid two months to even realize that families actually do this, that there are families out there, you know, Shout out to like Brittany Steinman and Amber Freed, who were my initial inspiration that this was not just a complete, you know, that this is actually in the realm of possibility. And so I started reaching out to authors and got put in contact with who was told to be the world's expert in our channel that's encoded by the gene and affected by the mutation. And he very hesitantly suggested potential repurposed drug candidate that could help correct the overactivity of the channel. And it still took a full year, despite the fact that this is a old, you know, relatively safe medication that's used in kids for bedwetting. It still took us an entire year of fighting and pushing and lots and lots of testing. Of course, we had to, you know, try to make sure that he wouldn't have any as much as possible that his channel would respond and that he wouldn't have any negative reactions. And so we finally were able to start him on that over the summer and saw some crazy results at first. It was like mind blowing. I was crying multiple times. Like he was just gaining new skills every single day, things that we had been working on for weeks or months or more in therapy. And then it kind of plateaued and we increased the dose and didn't see another like big skills burst. So we don't, we're back to the lab trying to figure out, you know, the correct dose and what's going on because biology is very complicated. <laughs> That's an understatement. Yeah, definitely another shout out to Brittany and Amber, the goats for sure. And we're so grateful for them and all of the guidance that they provide while they're still doing this. Yep. Right. 
I love that you hit the ground running. Obviously, you said you cried for a month or two and couldn't accept it. Do you feel like going down the route of figuring out the science and trying to find a drug and a treatment was a coping mechanism for you also? And have you found that it has helped in the way that you hoped? You know, I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, I, I look at the families who have much older kids and, you know, I think they've come to a real acceptance of their kids' abilities and their lifestyle and all of that. And I think that, yes, it was absolutely, you know, it was a way for me to channel my anger and my grief and try to do something about it. But I think on the other hand, you know, this hope, this desperate hope that I'm holding on to, that I'll be able to do something that can change his trajectory. I think that probably might keep me from fully, fully accepting things, you know, because that, so I don't know, it's a, it's a really, there's a lot of gray area between accepting the disability and fighting to like improve his health and his future. Thank you for that very transparent answer. I appreciate it. And I love the term desperate hope, because I feel like that is always a hidden word before our hope slang yeah. <laughs> for sure. Well, you know, caring for kids like ours, kids with rare diseases, medically complex kids, as parents, we encounter daily challenges, right? And they're, they, they offshoot in so many ways. It's multidimensional. It's complicated. It's our work. It's our duties in the home. It's being on hold. It's the insurance company. It's the school. It's our own mental health and our family lives. And our other kids. And our other kids. And you're just thrust into this world of caregiving. And most of us don't necessarily have these skills right away or knowledge, medical knowledge in any sort. It's hard to find resources that most parents can just get pretty easily from a parent magazine. What would you say to those families who are kind of right in the beginning of this and this giant car was just dropped on top of them and they're supposed to carry it and walk? Oh man, it's just, it's so much. And I feel for you. I feel with you. You know, I'm always hesitant to like, it's so hard because it's all all a spectrum, you know, like my son is severely profoundly affected intellectually and in terms of his ability to be independent in any way. But, you know, he's not, he's mobile and which brings its own challenges when you're so severely cognitively impacted. Um, but I'm very, very grateful for that. And he can eat orally and I'm so grateful for that. So it's always hard in our community and it's not technically, although there's some evidence that it is degenerative and so it's always hard to like say like, oh, it just, it sucks because you can look around and see how much worse it could be. But to anyone getting any level of diagnosis that, you know, is just changing their whole family's future in a way that was completely unpredicted, oh, it's, you know, just, I would say, cope with it how you can, take it every day, try to find, you know, that it's a balance between allowing yourself the time to process it and to grieve because it's a loss. Like even for those of us who hopefully won't, aren't looking at the immediate loss of our kids, it's a huge loss to the future that you envisioned for yourself and your family and your other kids. And so just give yourself time to feel that and yet try not to just like stay there and drown in it. 
try to find ways that you can cope in healthy ways because it's easy to do the unhealthy coping mechanisms. So just find things that ground you and try to stay in the present and not to envision all the terrible things in the future because some of them may not even happen. So yeah, just and reach out for support, whether that's professional support or your friends and family, depending how supportive they are. And just find whatever you can do to survive. Because I think Effie, I think you'll agree, like, it always sucks. It's never gonna, you know, not suck in a lot of ways, but it does get better, right? Like for me, as I've seen with in other grief work or loss, the first year was really the hardest, you know, you're uh, just hitting all those, like for me, back to school, the first year when after he was diagnosed, when my other kids went to school and the PTA president said, you know, for anyone who's lucky enough to have dropped all your kids with us and they're in your care, you know, go party. There was like a mom's brunch with mimosas and stuff. And I was like, I'll never be there. My little guy will never get to go to school with his brothers. And of course, you know, he'll, he'll go to school, but he'll have to get bused to a different one. And it's just all very different than you ever imagined. And so all those things that come up throughout the year, birthdays and holidays can be very triggering. But for me, even though I clearly still get very emotional a year and a half later, it really did get better after the first year. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're all we're all right there with you. I think we'll just call this episode. It's always going to suck. <laughs> things get better. <laughs> it'll get better, but it'll still suck sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel you. The loss in that first year of the, the enormity of the grief yeah. is so thick and yeah. overwhelming. Yeah. It does get better, but it does cycle, like you yeah. said. I mean, each milestone that other kids are hitting mm -hmm. or each activity that you as a mom can't join for yep. whatever reason or whatever it is, couples being able to go out to dinner and leave their kids home. Yeah. You see those things and they activate this again and again and again. So it does continue. You get better at blocking them, creating boundaries around your social media, just general wear and tear on your heart anyways. And you figure out ways to find your happy, right? Yeah. But it's okay to feel those, and you should, like you said. Just don't sit there forever because you'll get stuck. And you said something about the spectrum, and I feel like we all have that. And some people can get really kind of stuck there too, right, in comparing to where it can be unhealthy to think, oh, I can't talk about this now because this person's kid's in a wheelchair. Yeah. Or don't talk to me because my kid can't eat and yours can. What are some ways that parents who are kind of feeling a little stuck in the comparison part and like feeling a little isolated in that own way, what kind of things would you say to them to kind of help them get out of that? Try to have some perspective, you know, like I know we've all heard people complaining about something totally stupid and it's hard, you know, when your kid is facing such worse things or your family is facing such worse things. It's really hard not to get bitter, but that's just going to hurt you in the end and it's going to isolate you. And so I think, you know, we've all heard about how important gratitude is and just choosing to shift our focus from the negative. And like, we're not talking like rainbows and roses and unicorns and like, oh, be happy about everything. No, but like you can look around you and you can be truly grateful for the abilities your kid does have or the joy that they are able to show 
or, you know, the supports that you have in your life or the fact that, you know, maybe you don't have to struggle paycheck to paycheck or, you know, just look for it really makes a difference to try to intentionally shift your focus from the negative to the things that you can be grateful for. Such a good reminder. Let's talk about relationships, especially, you know, so many of the families here have one spouse, maybe both spouses, like leading a foundation, working towards finding a cure, a treatment, and they're going to their jobs and then they're coming home and they're staying up until three in the morning reading papers. Yeah. And I know why. And we're also grateful. And I also know what it's doing to kind of a lot of home lives of several of my friends when that kind of lifestyle switch and then all of the other stuff that we just talked about is happening. And you're probably actually going through that a little bit of yourself, right? Like you're the one staying up and reading papers right now and, do, and doing all of this work to help to help your little boy. So 100 percent. This is definitely a topic that that I feel like we need to kind of have a little more open dialogue on because our marriages are already at a heightened level of falling apart due to what we're dealing with. And then adding on all of that extra stuff. Tell us, tell us, Michelle. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm speaking from a professional hat, not a personal one in some ways here, because I very <laughs> much struggle with it myself, very much. Um, my husband and I had a big argument. We don't fight that much, but we had a big argument recently because him just saying, like, he feels like I'm never present with our kids. And I'm, you know, like, again, I'm going to get emotional. Like, I don't want to miss out on their childhood. And yet the other part of me says, like, if we can get something that can help Tristan be able to participate with our family or be more independent, that will help all of us so much in the future. You know, if, if he's extremely dependent forever and he outlives us, you know, I just, that, that's a very, very overwhelming thought. And what does that do to my other kids? So it's these two sides that like, I have so much urgency as his little brain is developing and wanting to as a you know human development person in under like that was my special or my um, major in undergrad i know you know the critical learning phase the first two to three years of life and trying to he's already nearing the end of that but of course the earlier you get interventions in place the greater the impact they can have and yet i don't want to be checked out for my any of my, my other kids him my husband it's really, really hard to find that balance. And, you know, like I'm, I'm a therapist to families with mostly healthy kids. Like marriage is hard to begin with. Marriage is really hard with little kids and kids to begin with. There's stats that show that marital satisfaction plummets after the birth of the first baby. And some of the, you know, research shows it gets it starts to improve when the kids hit around three because, you know, they're a little less up all night and so intensively needy. Some shows it doesn't really improve until kids move out. So, you know, kids, it's a lot. Being a parent is a lot. And for us, of course, with our kids with so many extra needs, there's so much extra stress and so much extra responsibilities and doctor's appointments and all of that. And so it really puts pressure on marriages and then you add the foundation stuff and it's like you're starting a company and trying to do all these things that 
you know, I never want ever wanted to be in sales. And basically now as a fundraiser, that's, you know, I have to figure out how to raise money and make these uncomfortable requests and approach all these people and try to raise awareness on social media. You know, it's a scientist and a project manager and a grant writer. It's just so, so many hats and, and community engagement. You know, it's crucial to engage not only the researchers and the, the doctors, but also the community. There are just so many aspects and the to-do list is never ending and you could literally work on it around the clock and not do everything you want to do. And so trying to find that balance is extremely hard. Yeah. I mean, do you think that it's even realistically sustainable for families like ours to do all of those things and to nurture your relationship at the same time? Well, I mean, no, you can't do everything. There are only 24 hours in a day and time is our most valuable resource in a lot of ways. So you just have to, you just can't do everything. You can't. And so you have to choose your priorities and set boundaries to focus on them. So how do we make time when there is no time? You got to carve it out and you got to be, you know, use whatever tools you can, whether if you're lucky enough to have the resources to hire help or, you know, not be afraid to ask for help. If you have friends, family, neighbors who are willing to do it, it's so crucial to get help. And, and then just, I mean, after our argument the other day, my husband and I, and I, I would not say I've been doing a great job about this. So I still need to definitely make more of an effort, but the agreement we kind of came to is like, okay, set aside, you know, he's in ABA therapy. So that gives me some hours during the day. We have some respite and then, but I need to like be off my phone, off my computer for a certain chunk of the day, you know, the, the af- late afternoon and evening when all the kids are home and I need to be present and not responding to emails. And so I still need to get better about sticking to that, but that was kind of the agreement we came to. And then in terms of just for us, we've found that setting time on the weekends to plan the, like, I mean, this is just basic stuff, just like time management stuff, which is not my forte. I'm not good at time management. My husband is very efficient and <laughs> thank goodness he he runs the ship around the house and he does way more than his fair share while he lets me focus on the foundation stuff but we've found that just simple things like taking a half hour on the weekend to plan like look at our schedules for the week plan out meals for the week make sure that like laundry and stuff gets done over the weekend it just makes such a difference going into the week you know, instead of feeling like you're running around with it, like a chicken with your head cut off constantly and feeling so incompetent and overwhelmed. Yeah, I think that's all of us. I mean, everything that you just mentioned. And it is basic, but the basic stuff is what keeps everything living and breathing, right? Yeah. And the basic stuff is really the most important stuff, especially when it's just being present, getting off our phone. Mm-hmm. We're not worrying about rare disease for three hours a day yeah. and just spending time with our families. Being present. So how do you do it, Effie? I see you. You're on Facebook all the time. How do you find that balance? Because I know you met like, you know, we're, we, I was uh, as a therapist, I know how bad social media is. You know, there are 
major correlations between anxiety and depression and the time you spend on social media. And so I avoided it like the plague before Tristan. And now I just feel this obligation to, you know, share our story, both for fundraising and just general awareness. Because before I was in this community, you don't see kids like ours out in the community a ton. I think people just don't know about families like ours very much unless they happen to know one. And so I feel this obligation to to post and to respond and all of this stuff. So I'm curious how how you try to strike that balance. Yes, and it, 100% to your last point. So I batch things every Tuesday. I have a set amount of time where like all I do is podcast work. And sometimes I'll do a couple interviews that day, right? And so I have these things batched in case I get too tired, someone gets sick, and I can still release these episodes and not stress out about it. Yeah. So I create kind of like a pipeline of things. I schedule posts too for a lot of things. So it'll schedule, I schedule something and it'll go to Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter, you know, and it'll do all of those things. I don't avoid social media like the plague. I know you don't now, but you used to. But yeah, since becoming a parent to Ford, I love social media. I love it so much. That's how I found my people. I only follow people like me now. So that's all I see in my feed. Once in a while, you'll get like an angry person and you can, just pass on by that. You can block it. But everything I'm seeing are my people, right, who I'm trying to like learn from and help elevate. And it's quick to just go share, boop, boop, boop. Like you don't have to write a bunch of stuff. Sometimes I'm like, man, I really wish I could write a big, meaningful post about this. But I'm like, ain't nobody got time for that. I'll just reshare it. And I just hope they know in my heart how much I mean it. I mean, if anything, just sharing other people's content or my own is enough. And I've I've made myself okay with that. Like, I don't have to make a pro profound long post about things. This podcast is definitely one of the things I've done. I get to talk to people like you every day, right? And I get to make meaningful relationships and talk about this stuff on a regular basis and put this content out there. It helps my soul. So I've done that. And then everybody knows about my four things that I do, non-negotiable. If you don't, then I don't know where you've been. But like the little things, right? I'll repeat them again. But I have this thing on my fridge. It's my oxygen tanks. And I have a picture that I drew. And it's water, something healthy, going outside and breathing. Yes. And I make sure to check every single one of those off my list. Really important for me. Yeah. Honestly, like, I love to garden and that was my therapy and, and also my lovely therapist friends who gave me, give me so much support and free therapy all the time. They were, they have <laughs> yes, definitely been lucky. a lifeline, but the other thing that always helps me when I just feel so, so down and I always feel better if I get outside. Yeah. hundred percent works every time. You know, sometimes I'll text my friend Daniel or I'll text, you know, whomever and sometimes it's just having that person that will do exactly what you said and said, yeah, this sucks, Yeah, but it'll get better. You know, like sometimes you just need that person to just let you say that and then you can move forward. And validate it. Absolutely. Because I'm sure everyone listening has experienced this. The people that like right after your diagnosis or you're going through a really tough time and they're, they just they're trying to help, but they say things like oh, you know, at least blah, 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 or, you know, it's, but you're such amazing parents, or you're, everyone around you will be a better person because of it. Like, oh, like those kinds of things. I 
sure people are trying to be helpful, but really they just don't want to face your grief and your pain and their, and it feels very dismissive. And I feel so lucky that my beautiful friends just know how to handle (laughs) feelings and we're able to sit with it. Yes. You're so lucky to have all those therapist friends. Yeah. Yeah. So basic things are the lifelines and you got to find your your spots and you have to make it a habit. Right. That's what Rose Reef therapist to the stars, meaning she only treats people with disabilities in the families. And she always says self-care isn't a trip. It's not getting your nails done. It's not taking a shower. It's not any of those things. It's making a habit and doing them over and over. Brushing your teeth. Did you forget to brush your teeth? That means you like really are kind of like fraying at the edges. Like those little things are habits and those are self-care habits. Go to the dentist. Go get your breast exam. Go do those things because those things are taking care of you as a caregiver and really shifting your perspective on what self-care is. Exactly. Not like an occasional manicure or trip or if you're lucky enough to do something like that, but like consistent, you know, a walk with friends or a walk by yourself or, you know, getting them into your routine so it's not totally sporadic kind of treats, but things that really consistently nourish you. Yeah, habits for sure. Okay, another thing I want to talk about, I know we have a lot of same-sex couples and a lot of single parents that listen, but I kind of want to talk about the difference between how men and women handle things and not necessarily why that is, but how can we make sure to show up and recognize that and not have a bunch of resentment, which will create all the other things. Absolutely. This is such a huge thing in, you know, typical couples. You know, I I see this all the time with my couples. And again, these are kind of large generalizations. Of course, there are many, many examples of men who don't fit these stereotypes and women who don't fit these stereotypes. But very frequently in relationships... And it can go either way, but very frequently in relationships, there is one partner who is less comfortable with like deep, you know, (laughs) emotional connections and all of that. And another partner who is pushing for more closeness and connection. And very frequently it's, you know, the woman who is wanting that and the man who is a little uncomfortable with that because they're not trained in our society a lot of times to you know, men are taught to be tough, men are taught to solve problems, which are things we need, whereas women are taught to value relationships and connection more in general. I think these things are changing, of course. But so how that can play out, you know, when you have major stresses in a relationship or major grief, as we're facing with these diagnoses or kids with severe health problems, is that again, kind of that dismissive thing that women can feel like men just won't talk about it, that they won't process it, that they don't open up about how they're feeling about it. And that just can frequently leave the other partner feeling so isolated and frequently like the other partner doesn't care. When in fact, they've done lots of studies that show that in these conflict situations or emotional situations, men are totally dysregulated internally. They're flooded, they're overwhelmed, they're freaked out, but their way of handling it is to kind of avoid, shut down, withdraw, which of course can leave the other person feeling totally abandoned and 
isolated and disconnected, which is so, so painful. And so I think just, you know, trying to remember that your significant other, if you're feeling like they don't want to deal with it or won't talk about it or won't open up about it, just remember like, and family, the families that they come from too, of course, have such a huge role, you know, the way that emotions were handled and difficult conversations and difficult feelings when people were growing up. So, you know, if you look at your in-laws and think that they're like repressed or, or, you know, don't communicate well, then of course, it's only natural that unless your significant other has done a lot of work on developing those skills, that they wouldn't be comfortable with those things. And so just trying to remember that just because they don't want to talk about it, or they don't seem to be showing the feelings that you're feeling doesn't mean they don't care. And trying to have conversations about it at times when the tension is not high, hopefully can help, you know, make some inroads. It's so hard. It's so hard, right? And yeah, coming from a place of grace and obviously making sure you pick the right time and asking if it's okay to have this conversation right now. If you have an avoider, you know, they may they may just say like they're never going to want to talk about it. <laughs> so basically everyone needs therapy and don't get too hung up on the fact that it has to be couples therapy. Just go. Yeah. Cuz it's going to teach you some tools on how to manage these situations. Yeah. But there is nothing that can replace couples therapy. I know it can be a tough sell for some significant others for sure, but, and find someone who specializes in couples therapy because it really is a specific set of skills and training. Do you think that like zooming in for therapy, especially couples therapy is as effective as being in person? Oh man, I, I think there is no replacement to in-person therapy and I miss it very much. I have gone completely online just to, you know, avoid any kind of germ exposure because that can lead to seizures for my son. Of course, it's not quite the same thing, but telehealth, both for therapy and for doctor's appointments has been such a blessing, you know, silver lining of the pandemic because it's so much more convenient, especially for families with kids they can't leave or, or just kids in general, you know, my, my families, it's great. You can put the kids down for bed and have a couples therapy session that you don't have to get childcare for. So Netflix is not couples therapy after you put the kids to bed. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <Right>? It. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> if that's how you connect, then go for it. That's so funny. Okay. What about like, what kind of advice or tips do you have on dividing up responsibilities? There's typically like one parent who's like managing all of the caregiving duties, at least most of them, right? Like managing everything I mentioned earlier, the school, the doctor's appointments, the house domestic duties, the dinner, while the other one is perhaps working full time and then coming home. Mm -hmm. Even if that person is happy to do all of it, and most parents are control freaks and thinks nobody <laughs> can do it the way they do it. But why is it important to kind of divvy up those responsibilities a little more? And how do we do that? Oh, this is such a hard one, because, you know, there. I, I love that you mentioned that we're control freaks. Me, you know, of course, the <laughs> stereotypical nagging wife or controlling wife. Uh, uh, that's me, 100%. I have, you know, I want the kids to eat this and wear this sunscreen. And, you know, I have all these specifications and I'm very perfectionistic. And it's such a fine line between there's 
there's two things because it is very, very real that women tend to bear so much more of the burden of childcare and caregiving, especially, you know, there's the whole second shift thing for full-time working mothers that they, you know, you have dual full-time working parents and yet it's the mother who, like you just described, is managing all of these extra logistics and time-consuming things. And so it's really important to try to sit down and, oh, there's this article. I couldn't find it. I'm gonna still going to try to find it and send it to you, Effie, and maybe you can link it because it just goes through like the mental load of planning all these things, which again is heightened for parents with kids with special needs. And it's just, I think a lot of maybe men don't realize, you know, the planning of the birthday parties, the getting all the Christmas presents, all of these things that a lot of times just fall to women and it's totally unfair and totally unbalanced. And then there's the flip side of, you know, some families where both partners really do do so much. Like my husband does practically all the dishes, practically most of the laundry. He actually does do the trip planning and the Christmas gifts and getting friends birthday gifts. He like, and he helps manage my email. I mean, he does so much above and beyond. And yet I will nitpick about, you know, my particular ideas of the ways that things should be done. So it's really trying to determine like holistically what each partner is doing and find some kind of way to communicate about it and divide and conquer. And it's okay to do that according to your strengths. You know, like I was working with a family recently who they needed to find a nanny. And, you know, of course, that's a big, time-consuming, stressful, emotionally laden task that the mom had just been pushing and pushing and pushing. Like, why isn't he stepping up? Why isn't he helping with this? And also like researching her kids' special needs. And as we discussed it, she kind of realized like, okay, he does, he's really good with the daily stuff. He packs all the kids' lunches. He does all the laundry. He does, you know, housework, blah, blah, blah. And don't be afraid to play to each other's strengths. Like if, if you just know that you hate the monotonous daily stuff and you are going to have very specific ideas about how this, you know, nanny finding process should go, then recognize what you're, again, focus on the, the positives, you know, recognize what your partner is contributing and maybe don't expect them to do a deep dive into the literature, like of, of your kid's disorder, like you want to, you know, maybe send them an occasional article that you find really impactful or meaningful, but finding just finding that balance is, you know, such a gray area, finding that balance between what is a realistic and fair breakdown and don't be okay with differences. You know, don't expect your partner to think and do things exactly like you. Mm, that was such beautiful advice. Thank you so much for sharing that and all of your advice so far. What I love is that this is so personal and I know that that's hard. I'm, I'm so thankful for you for being open enough to share it with us. And I'm so glad you're a therapist and you're a rare mom. Sorry, but not sorry. And I know that this is hard to talk about for a lot of families, and it's also hard to talk about because most people just don't have time to talk about it. It's kind of the back burner for a lot of us because we just like assume that that part will be okay because this is really important. And you can't, you can't assume that you got to, 
you have to invest the time or, you know, you are going to make your partner bitter or miss out on really important things in your kids' lives. So I know it's just like, just find the time, but we have to be intentional. We have to like set alarms, set boundaries, do whatever you have to do to prioritize your relationships and your kids and be present when you can try to walk that fine line because it's crucial. Yep. And I really think that we need to like have this, these conversations more because we're living this life together and it's unique and we're having very similar experiences all around, but especially behind closed doors. And we can, we can support each other and learn from each other. And we gotta, we gotta hang on because this ain't no joke. Yeah. And it's for the long term, you know, our kids aren't going anywhere. That's, that's the thing that's so overwhelming is we got to figure out these systems and these ways to prioritize and find time and enjoyment and self-care for ourselves and also our relationship because our kids may never turn three developmentally and they certainly probably are never going to leave the home potentially. So it's a lot to handle, but it's not going to change. And so we got to figure out ways to to cope and to connect and to find joy and fulfillment. Okay. Well, you're the best. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) I'm going to invite you back on the show at a later time. And I'm really excited for you and proud of you. And I'm, I love watching you. I'm, I'm here to help however you need. Can you leave us all with a little baby pep talk before we go? Oh, a baby pep talk. Well, you're doing it. You, what we have to do is not easy. And a lot of people around us don't get it. And a lot of the time, it just feels like we're surviving, which is not where any of us wants to be. But just like anything else, this too shall pass. And I think for most of us, there will be times in the future when it's easier. You know, it's always going to be a roller coaster ride. But just survive when you have to. And when you have a chance to catch a breather, try to set up some of these systems that will support you and give you more bandwidth. All right. Thanks for being my guest, Michelle. It was really my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.